This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome back. I'm Nikolai Zikolko, Professor of Management at the Wharton School, and this is Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School. I'm also joined in the studio by my colleague and co-host for the hour, Professor Saika Chowdhury. Now, we are thrilled to welcome to the show Carl Schrum, who joins us by the phone. Uh, Carl is currently a university professor at Syracuse, where he teaches courses on innovation. Uh, prior to joining Syracuse, Carl taught at the John Hopkins University as a professor of health policy and management. Uh, while there, he founded the John Hopkins Center for Hospital Finance and Management. And then Carl became the president of the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, uh, which is really the world's largest philanthropy dedicated to promoting entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship research. Uh, he is the co-creator of the Global Entrepreneurship Week, uh, which is now observed in 170 countries. He has served in major corporate roles. He has chaired the U.S. Department of Commerce's Measuring Innovation in the 21st Century Economy Advisory Committee. Uh, he has authored, co-authored, and edited several books, including his new book called Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. Now, Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about your personal journey, right? I mean, I, I, I sketched this a little bit here, but, uh, you know, it was academia, then it was advising to government, non-for-profit, back to academia. Um, tell us a bit about, about this journey. That sounds uh, amazing. Well, I think uh, probably the uh, most important link that broke my career was very unexpected. I was a professor at Hopkins. I was doing a lot of research, and I had accumulated um, all the uh, accounting data on every hospital in the United States. It was mm. the first time it had ever been done. And at the same time, I was accumulating uh, clinical outcomes data. And one day I was sitting at my desk, and I had one of those moments where I thought, oh, boy, this can't be true. Um, and the fact was, I knew that I could write another great article, you know, but no matter how many times people read it in the hospital industry or whatnot, it wouldn't change behavior. Mm. So I sat there thinking, I want to be a professor the rest of my life, but I have to start a decision management company in order to really change hospital behavior. And in those days, I knew that if I was going to do that, that meant the end of my life at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> you're a businessman at Hopkins or you're a professor. Anyway, so I left to start a company, HCIA, and that company was later acquired um, by a big hospital bond insurance company. And my life as a, a corporate executive was suddenly underway. I was president of an insurance company for Fortis, a big international um, insurance company. I ran their health insurance operations in the United States. And then after I left that, I, where I'd spent a lot of time and money investing in startups that were interested in doing clinical data analysis, I actually left and started my own merchant bank um, and began to invest in these clinical um, analytic companies. And it was while I was working there um, that I got the call to go be president of the Coffin Foundation. So suddenly I had a life in philanthropy. And next thing you know, uh, I was there for 10 years. And when I left there, I went back to academia, in this case, back to Syracuse. Yeah. <clears throat> no, fascinating. Now, 
Uh, there are, of course, lots of uh, interesting issues around uh, entrepreneurship and particular entrepreneurship and innovation in the healthcare system, <laughs> where uh-huh. where you have worked uh, uh, a lot in. Uh, and, uh, you know, so a lot of the theme in, in, in this program is right to think about how does innovation happen in, in large organizations and and why doesn't it and uh, why does not uh, change occur? So uh, what were some of your uh, observations? Because you just, you know, said this in your statement, you know, if I wanted to create change, you know, I had to leave academia and become, uh, you know, a businessman. And uh, what were some of your experiences in, in, in trying to change actually the organizations that, that, that you uh, worked with? Well, it's very funny because um, every organization I've gone to, uh, I've basically affected major change. If we if we go just back to the Coffin Foundation, when I got there, there were over 200 employees, and a year later, we were running with 100. We were running with 85 employees, so it was very hard to change. And no one ever expects any change of consequence in nonprofit. Certainly, in a, an endowment with two million two billion dollars, there's really no need to change, but if we were ever to become, you know, a consequential foundation, a worldwide philanthropy that would influence how people thought about things, uh, we had to have a different team. And I just had to change people and have to change people pretty quickly. So I think to your question, how do you affect change? Sometimes change can only be affected with new soldiers. Mm. The old soldiers don't know how to fight the war that you have to fight. And too many times I've seen in big companies a sense that, you know, I had this in an insurance company. Uh, it's one of the reasons I left that insurance company, because I knew we could actually become a lot more efficient if we went to automation, certainly of claims control. And the chairman of the board said, you know, we make more money in the company that you run across all the holding companies, or all the, all the companies that are in our holding company. Don't mess with success. <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. And I said, but wait a minute. Yep. You know, I can deliver twice as much profit. Mm-hmm. He said, uh-uh, don't mess with success. We're making enough. And a long time ago, of course, an economist, uh, Herb Simon, told us why this happened. He said a lot of managers are satisficers. Yeah. If you're making enough money, don't rock the boat. So that's another enemy of, of change. And, um, you know, it's tough for a chief executive to do it. I'm actually advising a company right now. And the advice I keep giving to the chief executive is, you know, the only people who like change are babies with a wet diaper. He always laughs when I say that. But the point is, inevitably, you're going to have to change the people uh, with whom you work. Once when I was running another company, I I had to get, um, you know, it was the same type of thing. My executive team was just all wrong. And I, I was a young man. I was only 37 at the time. And... You know, I worried and worried because I had six vice presidents and three of them just couldn't make the grade and do what we had to do. And I agonized about this, and I hired a huge, very famous personnel firm, Hydric and Struggles. And my consultant came in, and I I asked him about this. I said, you know, these are good people. Again, I was a young man. I said, isn't there a program we could send them to Harvard, (laughs) one of these executive programs? And he looked at me and he said, here's what you have to know. There's no diet you can give a chihuahua that will make it a great Dane. (laughs) And uh, I thought right away that that sort of became, uh, you know, uh, an uncomfortable truth, but one that every manager has to deal with if he takes over an organization and wants to move it forward. 
Fascinating, uh, Carl. You're talking about trying to change the mindset and effecting a cultural transformation in many ways uh-huh. in order to deal with, um, you know, perhaps uh, innovation and entrepreneurship and promote new ideas and new ways of thinking. Now, uh, you you talked about um, new people as an infusion of new blood, new ways of thinking, and so forth. What are the other levers that you've seen that work in trying to affect such a cultural transformation? Do you see anything in organizational structures or in perhaps incentives or in processes that uh, one could also work with? Well, of course, incentives. I mean, I'm an economist, so reflexively I say, sure, (laughs) right about incentives. But, um, you know, if you got the right people in in the – work is interestingly – interesting enough – People work like crazy, and this goes back to your question. I haven't forgotten your question. You know, structure is really important, um, and I'm a real flat structure person. Um, Actually, I came to understand myself as a manager, as someone, you know, um, I've always managed in very innovative environments, and I think in my case I have a limitation, and that is while I have managed, you know, thousands of people in an insurance company, over time, I came to understand myself as a person who really didn't want to manage more than 100 people. You know, that it's the old Roman wisdom of what the centurion was about and the cohort was about. And so in my case, that was important. So I flattened structures so I could really know what was going on. Now, my own belief is you can't know your personnel past 30 people, not very well. So at some point, you have to have lieutenants, vice presidents who actually you know, with whom you really have a great deal of trust. But back to the point, I think in addition to structure and incentives, clearly the right people is the central theme. But after that, there has to be a set of ideas to which people can bind themselves that will make their work feel like it's important. And, you know, when I was running an insurance company, I would meet with our staff from time to time and I would talk to them about how important our role was to the health of people, that they might be processing claims. But at the other end, there were people whose lives were depending on it. And, you know, the trick was basically trying to tell people who paid claims every day that their jobs counted. Um, so that's at, that's at the sort of administrative level of, you know, just getting the widgets produced. At the higher level, I think you have to have uh, managers who are constantly infusing new ideas. Now, my view of innovation is it is a synthetic process, and you can't be synthetic if you don't know much. So I think great managers are people, I see it all the time, who are reading, 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 and that way they become equipped with ideas. And the great managers are people who can pull ideas together and actually make innovation clear to people. They see the innovation, and then they can sell the innovation, making it clear to people. Great. Let's use this as a segue. Kind of, you have studied a lot of entrepreneurs, um, seen you know who are entrepreneurs, and uh, you know we have sometimes this vision of the entrepreneurs as the you know the young guy or the young gal in in, in uh, Silicon Valley starting up the new company. But uh, what what has has your experience been of who are really actually the entrepreneurs, both kind of who start new companies, but also inside organizations? Who who are the innovative people? It's two different um, questions, and they're really the same people, I think. But uh, to answer your question in gross, um, I have, in this brand-new book of mine, Burn the Business Plan, 
gone through an empirical study of who entrepreneurs are. And one of the 12 points I make in the second chapter is that entrepreneurs are not the prototypes that we think about from the experience of the Silicon Valley. The average entrepreneur in the United States, first time starting a business, he or she is 39 years old. So they're not 21-year-old kids. And where they come from, when I said this sort of the same thing, the, the majority of our entrepreneurs have worked in a major company almost 15 years. They actually have longer job tenure than most employees. So they've worked in one place a long time. And I think of big companies as schools for entrepreneurs and perhaps schools for innovators as well. But for entrepreneurs, they get to see innovation happen. They, in fact, see the synthetic process in a big company where new technologies are emerging and the companies are skilled at reading market signals and the synthesis of the technology and what they see as market need produces the new products to keep energizing companies. We're seeing it all the time now. You know, Chevy's just announced it's going to have a driverless car. It couldn't do that without the technology. And they see, because, um, you know, Elon Musk has been out there with his Tesla, telling us that there might be a market need. So suddenly, that synthesis is happening. Now, if you're there at General Motors and you're watching it, and you've been there 10 or 15 years, so you've learned huge amounts of business skills, I think perhaps the most important is you've seen scale, which a lot of 21-year-olds have no idea about, okay? And I think that makes you more ready to start leave a company and start your own. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, when I'm running a large company, I'm now scared that all of my uh, highly skilled long-term employers are leaving to start their own companies. What are, you know, what are, what are some of the reasons? Because, right, if I, if I run uh, the large company, I want to keep those people. And uh, so what can they do outside that they cannot do inside? Or what, what advice would you give to firms to say, look, you know, you want to have innovation and you have all these innovative people, apparently, because they're leaving you and creating new companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can firms do to, to keep them? Well, I think there, there are sort of three different ways to approach that, that question. First, uh, a lot of firms, I've seen this, and I recount some of these stories in my book. A lot of times firms, you know, they go back to a core competency or they decide that they're going to actually concentrate in one area, and suddenly things that they have thought were strategically important aren't business lines, and they dispose of them. And the people who've been able to grab those as the big company lets go have actually become great entrepreneurs because they actually have a going business and they generally know it. And it's a little easier to, to actually raise capital, scale capital, to keep that going. Second thing is that a lot of employees who start companies are terribly frustrated. Now, mind you, remember I said that many of the entrepreneurs leaving have particularly long job tenure. They're really loyal, um, and they get extremely frustrated that their vision of what an innovation could do to change the course of the company is frustrated, frustrated often by mm-hmm. managers. I often see this as the, you know, tension between the innovative engineer and the MBA manager, you know, who's working against a strategy and who has core competency competency running through his head all the time versus the engineer employee who basically sees technology in new markets all the time. Now, the third thing is really a very interesting question. I don't really have a good answer to it, but I think it's the question of the hour. How do big companies actually capture all this innovative spirit. You know, these innovators are very disruptive. Mm -hmm. And I've seen again and again, 
I may have actually been guilty of it once. <laughs> I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hunting down the innovator and making sure they stop the disruption, really getting them out of the company. So there are a lot of companies where it's, it's a not friendly territory if you're too innovative. And companies just don't know how to operate with that. I think in a sense it's sort of like we need the next Max Weber to come along and tell us how to deal with <laughs> fluid bureaucracy. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in case you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zikulko, along with my colleague and co-host Saika Chowdhury. And our guest today is Carl Schrum, and we are talking about sort of the broad topic of entrepreneurship. Uh, Carl, I was very intrigued by what you're saying, not just the focus on people, but uh, also how, on the one hand, things are systematic inside corporations in order to promote entrepreneurship and innovation, uh, and it's so dependent on people that have been there for a long time. Can entrepreneurship and innovation, especially in the corporate environment, and, and can um, people learn that? In other words, you know, is it that one day these people wake up and say that I just want to be an entrepreneur because I have the inherent attributes, or I've seen something, I've learned something in these companies, which then enables me or motivates me to become an entrepreneur um, inside or outside the firm? Yeah, I think it's the latter case. Uh, I really am not the person who believes that entrepreneurs are born and then they discover it. I think these are people who, um, like in my own case, and I think almost all, if not all of the entrepreneurs in my book were taken by surprise when it occurred to them that they could or had to start a business. So uh, what do businesses do about that? Um, I've been wrestling with this for, for a while with a couple of clients, and I think in a sense there almost has to be, I hate to use this phrase because it comes over from politics and doesn't really belong in business, mm-hmm. but it's almost like there has to be safe space for entrepreneurial employees, and that is people who discover. So I don't think you march through the ranks of all the employees saying, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, we love you, right? We'll help you. We'll mm-hmm. send you to school to get a degree in entrepreneurship. I don't think it works like that at all. I think there has to be some sort of sensitive gate so people who actually are in an innovative period of their life, okay, where they see things that managers can't because they really are at industrial meetings, you know, they're reading technical journals, they're talking to each other so informally, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every manager who's listening knows mm-hmm. this because once upon a time, they might have been down there, particularly if they were engineers. Uh, so, you know, there has to be some sort of space where people can actually try and push an idea around and actually scope it out and actually have at least a friendly ear someplace in the hierarchy of your company that says, you know, maybe, just maybe, this could be an extraordinary, you know, shift for us. In the book, I tell the story of Gary Burrell and Min Cowell, you know, who worked at Allied Signal in Kansas City, and they'd come over from King Radio, uh, where they were doing avionics, and when they got to uh, Allied Signal, their task was to use geopositioning you know, to help uh, with the atomic uh, warheads and, and the focusing of missile warheads on specific targets on the globe anyplace. Mm-hmm. And when the government relaxed um, the restrictions on using that technology in, in commercial areas, Allied uh, Signal just dragged their feet and dragged their feet and dragged their feet, and these guys kept saying, this is our future, this is our future. Long story short, Gary and Kim become Garmin, Okay, mm-hmm. Garmin. Yep. And, you know, their revenues right now are about five times those of Allied Signal. And, you know, I've 
got several stories like that, and I've talked to people 20 years after they left their company, and they're still loyal to those companies. Mm-hmm. One guy says in my book, I could have made all this money for Diebold, the big safe company, yep. mm-hmm. if only they had seen you know, mm-hmm. what I saw and tried to tell them. Right? I had no choice but to leave, and it killed me because I love that company. Great. So you talked a lot about uh, kind of the environment that promotes entrepreneurship sort of inside the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in this show, uh, Sekhet and I talked a little bit about uh, Amazon uh, looking for kind of a location of a second headquarter yeah. uh, and uh, what might attract Amazon kind of to a particular area. Uh, and of course, we believe sort of it's probably also part of the ecosystem and how innovative that ecosystem is. So uh, what has sort of your research shown of, you know, what are kind of now thinking about the environment outside the firm? What are sort of environments uh, that kind of really promote entrepreneurship and innovation? Well, you know, I default. My, my training was as a labor economist. So I always default to putting more cards on people. And, you know, if Amazon were to call me, I would say, you got to search for not just the best credentialed labor force because lots of people are running around with diplomas that really haven't had much of an education. So you don't want the best credentialed labor force. You actually want to figure out where the smartest people are. In this case, they'd be on the East Coast someplace. Um, <laughs> I think in the Philadelphia area probably. <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> um, actually, for a lot of reasons, it might make a lot of sense. Um, in part because... Truly, you know, you have the University of Pennsylvania there, and you, you, you're not far from several other major universities, including my old school, Johns Hopkins. Hopkins, indeed, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, which, you know, are a powerhouse, a magnet of talent. And you could just imagine if something like Amazon were to come, and, you know, I've spent some time in Seattle and have seen the, the depth and breadth and dimensions, scale of that company – You know, if a magnet like that were to arrive someplace, holy smokes, you know, or yesterday Apple announced it would build another corporate headquarters. Think about that landing someplace, right? And it would be, I think, a sort of a reciprocal thing. When that got there, you wouldn't have to worry much about smart people in the region. They'd start to flock there. So I think, you know, this may actually be quite an extraordinary change in our vision of how cities are revivified and how regions grow. Yeah. Well, Carl, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. That was really fascinating. Um, we really enjoyed our conversation with you, uh, both sort of about entrepreneurship inside organizations and uh, uh, kind of really the, the emphasis on, on the labor market that you put and, and sort of, you know, it is, it is people that eventually uh-huh. uh, really drive, drive change in organizations. So thank you so much for uh, coming to our show today. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I hope everybody goes out and buys Burn the Business Plan. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Please, uh, we certainly want to encourage our listeners to uh, check out Carl's new book, uh, Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. Great. Well, Sykart, that was uh, quite interesting, really, uh, about, about thinking about this uh, uh, from really kind of the uh, labor issue, because, again, that ties very nicely back, I think, to what we talked about earlier, right, about Amazon. That's uh, probably one of their key Uh, questions. Uh, where's the talent and how can I attract that talent in that region and retain it, right? Absolutely. I, I thought that connection was very, very strong. I mean, companies like um, Amazon and others, they rely on talent because they're coming up with new ideas all the time. They're not doing the same thing over and over again. And so they have to have smart people who have some expertise but are also adaptable. And so the ecosystem matters and uh, the talent pool is very, very critical. So 
I thought his emphasis was uh, was very apt uh, in that. I was a bit surprised, um, not that he emphasizes people, but uh, that how he saw links for uh, of people and everything. You know, even mm-hmm. when talking about that point, which intrigued me was. You know, he talked about managers being the clearly satisfying, uh, satisfying, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and and not wanting to change course. I mean, absolutely correct. You know, we sometimes forget that amidst all the talk about systematic, process-oriented thinking, which of course is important. He too acknowledges that, but it's really the people underlying all that yeah. which uh, make those decisions. Yeah. So a little bit the the hubris of you know we are successful. Why should we change? Right. Never never change a, a winning team. Um, yeah, what I found was intriguing was kind of uh, his point of really making everyone's job having a purpose yeah. in a sense, right? So, that, yes, you may think you are just doing claims here, but there's actually a person on the other side, right, who just got through an event like a accident and they are looking for, for money to rebuild their lives, right? And that's really what you're doing rather than thinking about you filling out some, some forms. Um, so that, I think, was... Uh, uh, another quite quite interesting point. Now, this this question about why can't uh, companies keep their entrepreneurs? Uh, yeah. Of course, there's sort of a long history, right, of of spin outs and spin offs from uh, uh, from organizations, and we we do know, right, uh, from work uh, by by a lot of people in the in the field that a lot of innovation, indeed, right, comes actually not from de novo startups, but kind of from these spin outs and spin offs. Um, Thinking about some of the companies you worked with, where where have you seen some some of that playing out? A uh, number of companies. A nice example is actually Cisco, uh, even though it's a little older. But uh, I think many of uh, our listeners will also uh, know the example of Telepresence, which is the most advanced video conferencing system that we have. So Cisco is known for doing acquisitions, of course, and buying their way into new innovation. But they decided that they wanted to promote internal entrepreneurship and startups as well. Saw so a lot of people who were leaving, just like we uh, were talking about. So they created their own incubation group, and they found those people and said, hey, you want to stay inside, you get a good salary, a little bit of a different incentive mechanism, perhaps not quite like being an entrepreneur, but with less of the risk. And do you want to do that? And one of the great things that came out was telepresence as well as a lot of uh, other companies. So basically it was like an ambidextrous organization, as uh, our friend Mike Tushman uh, would say. Um, two parts to it, a very creative, free-flowing, startup-like environment, and another one which is more traditional, which was useful for scaling and distribution. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that was a, a neat point uh, uh, that Carl made, right, of that people who have worked in large organizations actually know what scale is, right? And, yeah. And that the scaling up of small organizations uh, is not a trivial task, right? And so you have kind of this great idea. You have a small company and it grows, but actually making that into a really uh, big uh, company is, is not easy. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, that's all we have time for today. Uh, uh, big thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, remember, we are live uh, every Thursday at uh, 4 p.m. East, 1 p.m. West. If you have a question about something that you've heard on today's show, please send us an email to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And uh, be sure to follow our show on Twitter at uh, BizRadio111. And, of course, you can follow the Mac Institute at our own Twitter handle at Mac Institute where we'll also be posting uh, about the show. Once again, a special thanks to our guest today, Carl Schramm. Uh, I'd also like to thank our producers, Michelle Stucker and Dana Cash, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Until next time, I'm Nikolai Zikolko, along with my colleague, Saika Chowdhury, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, 
please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.